seated. You may be aware the third commandment forbids taking the Lord's name in vain. I think one of the ways Christians may be most guilty of that is to sing something like we just sang, but not mean it. Let's go before the Lord and plead with him that he would so captivate our hearts that we would say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, and we would mean it. Let's go before him in prayer before I read God's word. God in heaven, it's easy for us to go through the motions, to read words on a page. But Father, that's not all you desire. All you desire is everything. And so I pray that our hearts would truly mean what we sang. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. My moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Father, your word is going to, in all likelihood, rebuke all of us today because we have not wanted to lay our lives on your altar. Or we lay them down, but quickly take them back up. I pray, O oh God, that we would hear your word today, and hearing, we would do it. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, and as you're turning there, I want to give you a road map of where we are. We're, we're uh, in between two studies. We just finished a, a multi-month study of the, the Lord's letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We are getting ready, Lord willing, at the start of December to embark on a multi-year study of um, the Gospel of John. And we'll probably be there, I don't know, three, four, seven years. I don't have a clue. But I'm excited. Before we get there, we're going to spend two weeks looking at a very important issue that I think very few Christians understand. It's the issue of stewardship. And one of the proofs that I uh, would use to, to, to try to argue that very few Christians understand stewardship is that almost all of us probably innately go in our minds to think of giving, finances, financial stewardship. Well, stewardship does involve finances, it does involve giving, but it's so much more than that. Stewardship extends beyond every dime we spend to every second we use, every word we speak, every trial we face. Indeed, all of life, everything you have and everything you are, falls under the topic of stewardship. We, we don't really have the role of a steward today, but a steward in the ancient culture was somebody who was entrusted with the entire estate of another. You could think in the Old Testament of how Joseph was set in charge of Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a, a busy government leader, and so Joseph was given care of the whole house, the whole estate. Now, none of it belonged to Joseph. He couldn't use it just as he desired. 
His duty was to run it, to, to, to administer the estate the way that Potiphar would wish. That's what a steward does. A steward is managing the belongings of another, and we are to do it in the way that the other person, the owner of those things, would desire. Now, I hope you can see the parallels between stewardship and the Christian life. Everything you have belongs to God. Not, not just material wealth, not just what's in your bank account. Every talent you have, every breath you take, it actually belongs to God. And you are made stewards of it. I am made stewards of these things. And our duty is to use them, to steward them in ways that are agreeable to God's will. We're to, to use them in the way that God would desire. Money's just a small part of that. Stewardship is all of life. Sometimes people summarize stewardship as the three T's, time, talent, treasure. Well, it's more than that even. I, I think we could add more T's to it. It's all of our thoughts. Scripture commands us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our talk, how do we use every word to the glory of God? Jesus says we will give account in the last day for every idle word we've spoken. We could add to that our tables. How are you using your home, your dining room table, to show hospitality and build the kingdom? See, everything we have and everything we are has been entrusted to us by God that we might use it for God. And I think perhaps no passage teaches us that more clearly than Romans 12, 1 and 2. So look there with me now. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I appeal to you. What do you think of when you hear that word appeal? Most of us, we think of that word in terms of maybe an end-of-year appeal from a nonprofit organization. So we're going into December, and you're going to get in the mail end-of-year appeals where they are politely asking you to give towards that organization. Paul's language here is much, much stronger than that. In these two verses, the Apostle Paul is showing us that being a Christian is more than just occasionally showing up to church. It's more than just trying to be a good person. It's more than signing a check occasionally. He's pleading, he's urging, he's beseeching these Roman Christians, dear Romans and dear First Scots, if you are Christians as you say you are, then in light, in view of all that he has done for you, lay down your lives upon the altar as living sacrifices to God. 
Paul could have, he could have said, I command you to do this. Moses often spoke in commands. Paul in other places spoke in commands. But here, he's urging, he's pleading with the people. Does the mercy of Christ mean anything to you? Then it must mean everything to you. And if it means everything to you, then you should give everything to him as living sacrifices. You can hear in Paul's voice that he is pleading, just as I'm pleading with you. I want you to look at three things this morning. The first thing we're going to do is plumb the amazing depths of God's mercy. We will not hit the bottom. We have to start there because if we don't set as the motivation for our service to God, His mercy, if it's not our motivation, then we will serve God legalistically. We will serve God in order to pacify Him or to get something back from Him. That's legalism. But what Paul wants them to do here is to look at the mercy of God and all that God has done for them and to return their lives to God as an offering of thanksgiving. That's the first thing. The second thing we're going to do is consider what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron, living sacrifice. All the Old Testament sacrifices had one thing in common. They all died. And so a living sacrifice seems like a contradiction in terms, and yet that is what we are to be day in, day out, laying our lives upon the altar out of thankfulness to God for his mercy. And then third, I am going to plead with you, just as Paul did with the Romans, I'm going to plead with you to devote everything you have and everything you are in service to God. Let's start by thinking about the mercies of God. Romans, is, is, as, as most of Paul's letters are, it's a very neatly divided book. Theologians say it's divided between the indicatives and the imperatives. All that means is the first part of the book tells you what God has done. The second part of the book tells you, here's what you do as a response to what God has done. And so in Romans, the first 11 chapters are all about God's amazing mercy and how he has taken delight to show mercy to sinners, sinners who otherwise stand condemned. Now, if you think you're not a sinner, if you think you're not condemned by God for your sins, just read Romans 1. Paul starts off showing that the universal condition of man is sin. You come to, verse, uh, to chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. You come to chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in Romans 1 through 11, there are almost no commands. It is all, here is what God has done for you. That's what Paul's done for 11 chapters. I, I wonder if you and I had five minutes, 10 minutes, just to sit and think of all that God has done for us. Could we fill up that space? Certainly we should be able to, but can we just sit and think about Jesus? We are probably the most distracted culture in the history of the world. We move so quickly that it's hard for us to think deeply about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. But that's what the Apostle Paul has been doing for 11 chapters is he's just thinking and, and ruminating and boasting in what Jesus has done for us. 
you know, if we would do that a little bit every day, it would be a great blessing to our souls. Jesus Christ is the most wonderfully astounding being who has ever set foot on the face of this earth. When we read scripture and believe what it says about Jesus Christ, we are getting a glimpse at divine glory veiled in human flesh. We'll sing that soon. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. When we look at Jesus, we are seeing someone so wondrous that he infinitely transcends all earthly realities. To think deeply about Jesus Christ is simply put, it's the highest conceivable thing you can do in this world. It is your essence at its peak performance to think deeply about Jesus. Think of the most beautiful sight you've ever seen in this world. I, I am up early a lot of mornings, and the sunrise over the Beaufort River, looking at it from uh, the bridge downtown, uh, it's breathtaking. I've seen it hundreds of times, and it's still stunning. The first time you saw your spouse, uh, the first time you saw your child smile, these are, these are the beauties that can take our breath in this world. And God created us that there would be certain things that would just astound our souls. But of all the greatest beauties on earth, there is none that can ravish our souls the way that Jesus Christ can. And the more deeply we think of Jesus Christ and who he is, the more our souls truly come alive. Listen to this quote. I love this quote by the Puritan Stephen Charnock. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is light without darkness, love without unkindness, goodness without evil, purity without filth, and all excellency to please. He says, Like the sun shines forth its brilliant light, Christ shines forth the glory of God. Now, if all that's true, you and I have a question to ask. And that question is, how can someone like me stand in the presence of one like that? Of one who is so glorious. Oh, my sin should repel him away. You know, one of the ways we deal with that, one of the ways man deals with that problem is just to lower God down. To bring God down so that he's not much different than us if there is a God at all. And we make that God in our image so that he should be pretty proud of us. The God of the Bible, the God, is so wondrously holy that you and I not only shouldn't be allowed in his presence, but to even think of a God like this should destroy us. But you think of the Lord Jesus and how crowds flocked to him. And these were not just any crowds. These crowds tended to be the worst of the worst. These were the tax collectors and the sinners. These were societal outcasts, people who had made a train wreck of their lives. These were not deeply religious people. These were people who ought never be in the presence of God. But they flocked to him because in Jesus Christ, they saw on the one hand this awesome glory and beauty 
And yet they found one that welcomed even the lowly and dirty to himself and said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They could see in him this magnificent heart, a heart that perfectly loved holiness and radiated glory, while at the same time brimming forth, overflowing in mercy, inviting sinners to himself. And it's in that hope of mercy that we come to Christ. You know, every thought we have about God, every act of service towards God, every prayer we utter depends not on how well we clean ourselves up, but just the opposite, that we come to him as debtors to mercy alone. As we look to Jesus, we look away from ourselves and we see this one who hung the heavens in place hanging from a cross. We see the one who is so holy that the thousands of thousands of angels who minister to him cover their eyes and yet he makes himself accessible to us. As you glimpse the amazing beauty of Christ, then compare your sins with the incredible power of his blood, your need with his perfect all-sufficiency, your filth with his awesome purity, your frailty with his resurrection power, your lukewarmness with the white-hot fire of his love. And what we see is that the sin of the repentant sinner looking to Jesus is no match for the mercy of the risen Savior. The language that the Apostle Paul is using in Romans 12, it's intentionally Old Testament sacrificial language. He's doing, Paul's doing something fascinating here. In the Old Testament, page upon page is devoted to explaining how to bring various types of sacrifices. And there were many different sacrifices. But if we distill it down, there were really two. There were sacrifices for atonement, and there were sacrifices for thanksgiving. And the point Paul is making here is, in view of God's mercy, in other words, Jesus has made the atoning sacrifice that you need. Jesus, who hung upon the cross, he did what those millions of bulls and goats sacrificed over 1,400 years could not accomplish. It took away the sins of his people. And so Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. And do you see what Paul says? In view of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to him. See, the only way we can rightly serve God is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Because if we're not looking to his mercy, then we serve him not to please him, but to appease him. I have to do this. I have to do this. Maybe God will be nice to me in the end if I do my duties. But when we understand that Jesus has made atonement for us and Jesus alone can do this and we can come to him only by mercy, we don't try to earn his love. We live our whole lives in the light and the warmth of his love. 
When I, if, if I lose sight of God's mercy in my heart, service to God becomes nothing more than a checklist. I have to go to church. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do, do all these things so I can stay on God's good side. And what happens is your heart grows cold and service becomes burdensome. But when God's mercy is at the center of your vision, it's as if God pours gasoline on that spark in my heart so that I can wake up every morning and put two feet on the ground in the go position ready to live my life for the glory of God. But it has to start with the mercy of God. Well, second, let's talk about what it means to be a living sacrifice. This is temple sacrificial language. Each day, animals were brought in to the temple for one purpose, to die, to lay their lives down on the altar. Now, they're not sensible enough to realize what's going on, and they certainly don't volunteer for it. But day after day, animal is brought into the temple, animal after animal after animal brought to the temple, laid on the altar, and slain. That was until Christ made atonement for our sins once for all. And what Paul is saying is that in the Christian life, in light of Christ's atoning work, his mercy, you're to bring a thank offering. And do you know what the thank offering is? It's you. It's your life. You're not presenting an animal to lay on the altar, but to place your own lives on the altar, taking your hands off of it, that it would be totally given to God for Him to use for whatever He desires as long as you are on this planet. In other words, to connect the dots, as Paul calls us to be living sacrifices, he's telling us also how to be good stewards. If we could picture this, where Paul says, present your bodies. Uh, that word bodies here represents not just your physical being, but it's the entirety of, of who you are. It's, it's metaphorical language. Every inch, every ounce of you, from head to toe, 100% placed upon the altar of God as a living sacrifice. First century Christians understood this concept a little bit better than we do today. In the first century, to say, I am a Christian, was really to sign your own death warrant. There was a very good chance that if you were a Christian, you would die for your faith. The Apostle Paul already referenced this a couple chapters ago in, in Romans 8, verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as, as sheep to be slaughtered. Can you imagine getting up this morning and wondering if this would be the day that you were finally arrested and martyred for your faith? Can you imagine wondering right now as you're sitting here listening to a sermon if somebody's going to bust through those doors and take you to prison? That's a foreign thought for most of us, but it happened this past Sunday to our brothers and sisters at Good Soil Church in Daju, China. Let me read to you that report from one of their members. Sunday morning, Elder Li Yingqiang and a few other church leaders visited brothers and sisters at the Good Soil Church plant in Daju, Sichuan province, where they held a baptism and administered communion 
the service was interrupted by law enforcement officers from multiple departments. A total of 13 brothers and sisters were taken to the police station. Some were released that day, some the next day. One still remains in prison today. They understand what it means to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Let me ask you, if that scenario were to happen, would you lay down your life for the sake of Jesus Christ if that were what were demanded of you? For most of us, that is an absolutely irrelevant question. You and I, in all likelihood, will not experience this anytime soon. But the question isn't, for most of us, is Jesus worth dying for? The question I have for you is, is Jesus worth living for? Is Jesus worth living for? That's the question of a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice dies to itself every day to live to Jesus Christ. And you and I make that decision not just once, but a hundred times a day in the little things of life, the little decisions we make. See, the Christian life is not so much lived in the monumental decisions of life, but the small things day by day as we steward every moment to the glory of God. That's how God has structured this world. He has intentionally given us limited resources, limited time, limited money, limited gifts and so all day every day we have to spend we spend those things we use those things according to what we value if god had given us no limit to our riches we could give a billion dollars to the church and it wouldn't affect us at all but he didn't he made us stewards of limited resources because every day you and i are going to make hundreds of decisions about what matters most to us. We should take that seriously. You know, every Christian that I've ever met desires to hear those words that Jesus speaks in the parable, well done, good and faithful servant. And I've never met anybody that says, oh, I don't desire to hear that. Do you realize that parable is about stewardship? You cannot be a careless or poor steward and expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The Christian's duty as a living sacrifice is to steward all of life, not according to our own will, but according to God's will. According to what matters not most to me, but what matters most to God. How do I know what matters most to God? Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying here, in do, saying do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. He's saying because of sin, your natural tendency and my natural tendency is to use everything we have for ourselves. And we are naturally born in conformity to that pattern of this world, that everything I have is for me. Martin Luther had a great saying in Latin, we are in curvatas in se, we are curved in on ourselves. We naturally care most about ourselves. We don't have to teach anybody to be selfish. 
You know, I once heard somebody say of the hymn that we just sang, Take My Life and Let It Be, that if it were written today, it would be titled, Take My Life and Leave Me Be. Sinful human man's natural goal with everything we have is to satisfy ourselves. And as believers, we're not to conform to that pattern, but we're to have our minds renewed by the Word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to test and discern what God's will is. How do we know what God's will is? Because God's Word tells us we cannot be good stewards if we do not know the Word of God. What kind of steward are you? Do you see all that you have and all that you are as primarily belonging to God? And your duty as living sacrifices is to return those things back to him for his glory and the good of your neighbor. That is a foreign thought to us today. I want to briefly just run through some areas that we as a church need to be mindful of when it comes to stewardship. And I'm going to do the obvious first. We're going to spend more time on this next week. But money, finances. God has providentially given each of us, even the wealthiest of us, limited funds. Why? So that daily we have to choose to spend our funds on what matters to us. Many of us are willing to spend far more money on athletic events or toys or games than we are towards the kingdom of God. That tells us what's most important. That's why Jesus says to us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But if we're living life in view of God's mercy, then we begin to see our money not as something just for us, but something we can use to the glory of God. More on that next week. We're stewards of our time. You know, I'm far more concerned about how you spend your time than your money. You can probably lose money and then make more. Once time is gone, you will never get it back. Each of us gets 24 hours in a day, and we make choices all day about how to steward it. How did you steward your time this week? You know, the average American watches dozens of hours of Netflix or plays video games or scrolls through social media, reads the newspaper, watches the news. None of those are bad things in and of themselves, but let's just sit down and compare how many hours did I spend doing those things versus consciously serving the kingdom of God this week, reading the word of God this week, discipling others this week. A good steward is, is always thinking about how to redeem the time for the glory of God and the good of neighbors. Some of you are retirees. That's a wonderful gift. And I know sometimes I come off hard on retirement. I don't mean to. I'm not critical of retirement at all. In fact, I think it's a wonderful gift that you are, if you're retired, you are a steward of more free time than you have ever been in your life. It means that you have more opportunity to be useful to God in ministry for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor than you've probably ever had in your life. I praise God for good stewards of retirement, and our church every day benefits 
from those who steward their retirement well. But I am critical of being a bad steward of retirement who wakes up and says, well, how do I want to use my time today? Maybe I'll, 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 I'll watch a few hours of TV. I'll hit the links. I'll spend a few hours scrolling the internet. I'll nap. And it isn't thinking about how to redeem your retirement to the glory of God. That's not what a good steward does. A good steward of retirement is going to spend your twilight years making disciples, serving widows and orphans, visiting shut-ins, helping the church. You are stewards of your time. You're stewards of your homes, aren't you? This is a third area of stewardship. You're steward of your homes. Do you see your home as a place of ministry for the glory of God? God has given you your home, yes, as a place of rest and refuge and safety, but there's also an expectation that we will give it back to God as a place of hospitality and ministry. Uh, let me ask you, are, and there are, certainly, I understand, there are some extraordinary cases in here where your home may not be usable, usable for that purpose. I understand. I think there are other ways you can serve, but for the vast majority of people, uh, that's not going to be the case. Are you using your home for the glory of God? Well, it, it's too small. It's too messy. Once I get it in order, then I will but I can't let people see it as it is. Well, I'm not a good cook. I can't have people over. Ah, how confused are we? God didn't give you your home or food on your table to impress other people. He gave you your home and food on your table to minister to other people. I came across this quote yesterday in a book on hospitality. Alexander Strauss said, Unless we open our homes to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers and sisters is only a theory. In other words, it'll never become reality until we let each other into our lives, into our homes. You're a steward of your homes. You're a steward of your relationships. If you have people in your life, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, whoever they are, none of it is accidental. All of it is providential. Every person whom God has placed in your life, he has intentionally placed there for you to show them something of the glory of God. You are stewards of those relationships. You're stewards of so many other things. You're stewards of your conflict. You're stewards of your children. You're stewards of so many other things that we're not going to get into today, but the whole point is that everything we have has been providentially given to us by God. And in view of his mercy, we are to offer it back to him as living sacrifices. And I think that's wonderful news. A few years ago, a book came out called Radical. There, there was some fine stuff in it. But the point of Radical was largely that you go to the ends of the earth to do ministry. That's not what most people are called to. Most of us are called to ordinary Christian ministry, doing life together, welcoming people into our homes and into our lives, using our resources for the glory of God. And, and so rather than say that life has to be radical, 
the Christian life is very ordinary. We steward what we have for the glory of God. You, you don't have to go to the ends of the earth as a missionary to make your life count for God. You don't have to go to seminary and become a pastor to make your life count for God. You don't have to be an elder or a deacon to make your life count for God. All you need to do is see yourself as a living sacrifice and lay yourself down on the altar as a good steward of the things God has entrusted to you. I think this is something that some in this congregation may struggle with. I think that there are some who struggle with thinking if you're not an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a musician, then you don't have anything to offer. That, that the pastors and the elders, the ones that do the real work of ministry and everybody else doesn't really have anything to offer. doesn't really matter to the church. Y'all, that could not be further from the truth. Look what Paul says there, the end of verse 1, holy and acceptable to God. Uh, that's temple language of an unblemished lamb that would be inspected by a priest, and if it's acceptable, then it would be sacrificed. And Paul's saying, dear ones, if you have been washed in the blood of Christ and are committed to faithful service for the glory of Christ, no matter how small the act may seem, it is wonderfully significant and pleasing in the eyes of God. Not in and of itself, not without Christ, but as Christians, everything we do to the glory of God is drenched in the aroma of Christ, and it becomes a fragrant offering to the Father. All believers, irrespective of your varied giftings and callings, have precisely the same vocation to be holy, committed, humble, loving, and conscientious stewards of all that God has entrusted to you. Whether it's been a great estate or a small estate, whatever he's entrusted to you, return it back to him. The widow's coins, her two almost worthless coins, they were nothing in the world's eyes, but it was a fragrant offering to the Lord. Let's contrast that with what we saw last week. Those of you that were here, we were looking at Romans chapter 3, uh, Revelation 3. Christ's words to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was a church that thought very highly of itself. And Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. Do you get it? There is a Christian life that is acceptable to God. There is a Christian life that is unacceptable to God. I'm not talking about your eternal standing. If you've been justified by faith, you are accepted by God. But there may be seasons of life where even those who are true believers live in a way that is not pleasing to God, live in a way that is selfish. Lukewarm Christianity will never please God. But living sacrifices, no matter how small or even unnoticed in an earthly sense they may be, bring great pleasure to God. And all of life, then, can become worship. Moms, as you faithfully train up and nurture little ones day in, day out, you can change diapers to the glory of God. Children, Clean your room. 
because this is what your parents asked of you, but do it to the glory of God. Husbands, shepherd and lead your families. Lead them in family worship and train your children up in the faith. That's your spiritual act of worship. Do it to the glory of God. If you work, be a good employee to the glory of God, working hard as unto the Lord, not unto men. See, when we set ourselves upon the altar as living sacrifices, all of life can become worship to the glory of God. Well, pastor, that sounds good. I'm all in. Do you know the problem with living sacrifices? They love to get off the altar, don't they? They're always climbing down from the altar, and here's what that looks like. And sometimes we get this. Alex, I want to be useful to the church. Okay. And I'll give them something to do, and they'll say, no, not that. How often do we do that to the Lord? Use me, Lord. Not like that, (laughs) or that. And not that either. Can you use me in some way that's really convenient and fun for me? I appreciate the way one pastor said it. He said, sometimes when I'm preaching, I look out at the congregation, and it's like some people in the room have a do not disturb sign hanging around their neck. Is that you? Use me, Lord, but not that way. (laughs) That's not convenient. Use me, Lord, but not early in the mornings. Let me sleep in. Use me, Lord, but not in her life. She, She really bugs me. Use me, Lord, but... Don't don't touch my money. To be a living sacrifice is to lay it all down on the altar. Even when you're tempted to climb off. It's the last thing I want to do. I want to plead with you. Just as Paul did with the Romans, I want to plead with you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. One definition of preaching is that it is a personal, passionate plea. And so I want to give you that. For Scots, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't be lukewarm like the church at Laodicea was. Lukewarm Christians do not honor Christ, and lukewarm churches do not survive. I'm not going to try to guilt you or command you to do anything, but I'm going to plead with you. Consider the mercies of God. Did Jesus Christ bear the whip for you? Did he take the nails for you? Did he hang as a criminal for you? Was he buried in the ground for you? Did he experience the depths of torment in his soul that you and I cannot imagine, but he did it for you? Did he become a dying sacrifice for you? With that mercy of God in your vision, will you not become a living sacrifice for him? Take my life and let it be, Lord, consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. My thoughts, my money, my home. Will you seek to be a good steward of what he has trusted to you? Does your salvation depend on it? No, of course not. And yet, if your salvation 
is by the mercies of God. And that is the only way of salvation. If that salvation, if you can think about it, and it doesn't move you to desire to lay your life down upon the altar, you need to ask the question, why not? Why is it that I can say I'm a Christian, but it is making no ostensible difference six days a week? Could it be that I'm not a Christian? Could it be that I'm a lukewarm Christian? It's one of those two things. Because a living sacrifice will be ostensibly different. And God's mercy reorients us away from selfish, lukewarm, half-hearted Christianity. Someone who has really experienced the mercies of God will not say, how much of my resources do I have to use for God? Someone who's really experienced the mercy of God understands that we're living sacrifices, and so we're not asking, how much of my resources do I have to use for God, but how much of God's resources should I keep for myself? That's got to be at the heart of the good steward who has been transformed by the mercies of God, and I plead with you, church, stop half-hearted, lukewarm Christianity that may affect a couple hours a week and otherwise you're on your own. Dear brothers and sisters, lay your lives down upon the altar of Jesus Christ because he laid his life down for you. How do we apply this text? Of course, the whole sermon was application, but I'm going to throw a couple in. Do everything you can to keep the mercy of God front and center in your life what he has done for you. If you don't do that, it just becomes a checklist. You check the box that you've been to church and you tithed and you did this and you did that. Never let service to God replace time with God. Service to God flows out of time with God as you meditate upon his mercies. If you don't do that, you'll grow cold, you'll burn out. Seek the Lord early and often during the day, reminding yourself over and over again of his immense mercies to you, and that will light the fire of your soul to serve him with all that you are. Second, stewardship often starts with faithfulness in the small things. One of the things that I've noticed in churches, I don't think we're this way anymore. I think we used to be in a lot of ways. I don't think we're this way anymore, but it's that everyone wants to run the church. Nobody's willing to clean the toilets. Nobody's willing to take the place of the servant. And I think this church is very different. Many of you are willing to take the place of the servant. But the living sacrifice doesn't pick and choose which of God's callings he wants. If God calls you to sweep the floor or if he calls you to preach the sermon, it's all the same to the glory of God. Third, do not neglect the role of the ordinary Christian life. Don't neglect how important it is. I've been a Christian 22 years. I've had some tremendous pastors pour into my life. Doug Kelly, Terry Johnson, Bill Barkley. The biggest influences in my spiritual life over the last 22 years have not been pastors. One of them's a farmer and one of them is a chemical salesman. What do they have to offer? Everything. They have shaped me 
in terms of who I am as a believer more than just about anyone else on the face of the earth. Dear ones, don't neglect the importance of the ordinary Christian life, faithfully serving God, investing in others, discipling your children, encouraging the saints. As pastors and leaders, Pastor Walton and I aren't the ones that come here to do the real work of the church. We're here to help equip you that you might do the real work of the church. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the mercies that are ours in Christ Jesus. If, if we were to spend even a few moments a day just meditating upon your kindness and your mercy to us, it would utterly transform us. And we would be able to say with all our hearts, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Father, I pray that this would be the heartbeat of our church, that we would be a contrast to what we saw last week, a lukewarm church. We would be a church that desires with all that is in us to serve Christ, because it's all his anyways. Help us, we pray in Christ's name.